Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll talk with Dr. Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota, who, along with some colleagues on President Biden's COVID-19 Transition Advisory Board, have been calling for a new normal of life with the virus. We'll find out what that looks like on today's program. And then Tori Gorman and I will review how the federal budget is looking through the first quarter of 2022. But first to Dr. Osterholm. He's an internationally recognized expert in infectious disease epidemiology. He's Regents Professor and Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Also joining the conversation today is Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris, whose past experience includes overseeing communications and government relations for the Connecticut Department of Public Health during the first year of the pandemic. Dr. Osterholm and Av, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Bob. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Osterholm, it's a great uh, pleasure to have you on the uh, program. And because Av has had some experience as a public official dealing with uh, COVID, I'm going to ask him to take the lead in the questioning. But first, I want to remind our listeners why this subject is of interest to a fiscal responsibility group like the Concord Coalition. Uh, quite frankly, over the past couple of years, we've seen the effect on the uh, budget and the economy from having to try to mitigate the uh, this healthcare pandemic, and frankly, uh, the budget is not going to get back in shape until the economy gets back in shape, and the economy is not going to get back in shape until we figure out some long-term strategy for uh, dealing with COVID. Which leads me, uh, Doctor Osterholm, back to you and the uh, the way that you and others have been advocating a new normal, which seems to make a great deal of sense to me, not just uh, from a healthcare perspective, but from uh, a budgetary and economic uh, perspective. So we budget uh, watchers look to you healthcare experts right now as our gurus. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I've, um, I'll, uh, with that, I'll, I'll defer to you for the, for the questioning. Well, thank you very much, Bob and, and Dr. Osterholm. Thank you so much you. for being able to join us. It's a, it's a great honor to have you on the program and as somebody who, who worked in public health during the first part of the pandemic, um, I was a director of communications and government relations over at the Connecticut Department of Public Health, and we were very hard hit in, in the mm -hmm. first wave. And it was, I, I remember those days like, uh, you know, we were working 24-7 and it was, it was constant crisis. Um, now, we're a couple of years after that. I want to paint you a very short picture. I'm in New Hampshire now. Um, we we're at a point right now where we have more cases and hospitalizations at any point during the pandemic. Although I have to say in the last couple of days, it's actually come down from the peak. So we might be getting over the peak of mm -hmm. Omicron now, but 
I walk down the street in Manchester, New Hampshire, and I see lots of people crowding bars and restaurants, not wearing masks. There's a lot of people refusing to get vaccinated. We have nearly 40% of our eligible population that has not been vaccinated. So that's a picture from here. I'm wondering how do things look from where you sit in Minnesota and what are you hearing from your colleagues in other parts of the country in terms of what's the disease activity and are people actually taking steps to keep themselves and their families safe? And number one is America's done with the virus. Unfortunately, the virus isn't done with us. Mm. And we see this across the entire country and it's not unique to one state. The extent to which some states are more vaccinated than others surely makes a difference because we've been able to demonstrate that having your full vaccination and your booster dose, you actually have a much, much lower risk of having serious illness and being hospitalized and dying. So from that standpoint, to keep people out of the hospital, to keep them from having serious illness, vaccine makes a big difference. I think what we're witnessing here is two things. One is we're two years out into this situation and people have just become so fatigued that uh, they say, you know, let come whatever's gonna come, okay? But the second thing is they keep hearing that this Omicron wave is very mild. And that's really been a misnomer. Um, on an individual basis, the likelihood of having severe disease is less, but overall population-wise, because of the increased transmission, there's actually more sick people who need hospitalization. Let me give you an example. If you had a thousand cases of Delta virus infection, and let's say a hundred of them were going to need hospitalization or be, and be seriously ill, then along comes Omicron, a thousand patients, only 10 might need hospitalization for serious illness. Say, well, that's a big step up, that's great. Problem is there's 10 to 20 fold increase the number of people infected with Omicron that are infected with Delta. So suddenly the absolute number becomes really a challenge. We've not conveyed that well to the public. Most people just see this as a common cold or a cold-like illness. And so that's, that's, that's the challenge. Now, the one last piece of good news, however, and it's not necessarily good news for all the right reasons, is that within the next three to five weeks, I think most of this surge will have passed us and the case numbers will come down precipitously. The problem is it doesn't mean that COVID is over. It doesn't mean that a new variant couldn't emerge that could do exactly what Omicron did three, four, five months from now. One of the things I remember, and I don't know if you participated in this, but uh, there were a number of states and local public health jurisdictions who are participating in a pandemic drill in the summer and a fall of 2019 of the Crimson Contagion. I don't know if you uh, participated in it or not. Um, and we, we did plan uh, for that in that pandemic drill for high rates of absenteeism in workplaces, the kind of things we're seeing right now, right? 30 to 35 percent of the workforce in some cases out with the great number of uh, you know, economic disruptions that causes. But what we did not see or foresee or plan for in that um, simulation, national simulation, was the degree to which public health measures have become politicized um, and the high number of people who would just refuse to get vaccinated, uh, meaning we're never going to get to that herd immunity level and there are enough hosts so that this mm -hmm. virus can continue to mutate and expand and everything like that. I'm wondering... Uh, if you as, as, as a public health uh, person for many years of your life, as an epidemiologist, does, did the politicization of the pandemic response surprise you or was that something that you always figured might happen? Well, you know, I wrote a book in 2017, Deadliest Enemies Are War Against Killer Germs, in which I laid out what an influenza pandemic could look like. 
And many of the aspects what you're seeing with Omicron, I also laid out that would happen in that book. And unfortunately, it's playing out just as we predicted. I think the issue, though, that was more challenging was, in fact, as you pointed out, the political divisiveness. It's been really very, very difficult. And in that regard, I think that um, part of it obviously is the politics of the day and so forth. But I think also we in public health deserve some of the, I might say, accountability for that. I think our messaging has been less than clear. I think our messaging has been confusing. If you go back and look a year ago right now, you know, I uh, I was saying publicly and on my weekly podcast that I thought the darkest days of the pandemic could still be ahead of us. This was at a time when case numbers are coming down rapidly from the peak in early January and we had vaccines flowing. But what public health missed was, in fact, what the new variants might mean. I saw alpha. I saw beta, I saw gamma emerge. I thought, wow, you know, that old fifth dimensions tune, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, except I kept hearing every morning when I wake up, this is the dawning of the age of the variants. And I think that because we missed that and we didn't understand that there could be much more to happen after that initial rollout. And you saw government uh, around the country here, state, local, federal government agencies actually celebrating on the 4th of July of last year you know, freedom from COVID, independence from COVID. And I think that that we, in a sense, confused the public tremendously. Mm-hmm. We didn't give them a sense that more could happen. So I think once your critical voice becomes challenged, then at that point, everything starts to really go downhill quickly. And I think that's where we're at today. The testing, the mask wearing, uh, you know, all of these issues are challenging issues. They're not easy. So it's not as if somehow I'm saying that it's going to be a simple job, but I don't think we've done a good job. So, you know, to the extent that the political aspects of of COVID have emerged and are really a challenge, I think some of our communication efforts are equally the challenge. So I'm curious about your your recent opinion piece uh, that you and uh, uh, Dr. Zeke Emanuel and some of your other colleagues on the Biden transition team as pandemic Mm -hmm. advisors One of the conclusions you drew was, uh, and I'm going to quote here, um, after previous infectious disease threats, the U.S. quickly forgot and failed to institute necessary reforms. That pattern must change with the COVID-19 pandemic without a strategic plan for the new normal. With endemic COVID-19, more people in the U.S. will unnecessarily experience morbidity, mortality, health inequities will widen, trillions will be lost from the U.S. economy. This time, the nation must learn and prepare effectively for the future. So my question to you is, so what is the new normal? What does it look like? Well, first of all, we don't know. And anyone who doesn't admit that, be careful because they probably have a bridge to sell you to. You know, humility right now is a very, very key component of what we know and don't know and what we are trying to find out and how we're communicating that to the public. Uh, I've already mentioned the fact that we could have new additional variants that could emerge, that could evade the immune protection of our current vaccines uh, and that of natural immunity from infection with Omicron or Delta and could be highly infectious. There's no reason that that can't or won't happen. So we have to be prepared for that eventuality. We could be going through an Omicron situation again. Now, no one wants to hear that, Mm. but that's really important. We know that. At the same time, we may find that this was the last of the major variants to emerge and that anything after this will be a tweak on what already exists. 
then we're going to see a new normal where we get back to doing what we were doing still probably i'm sure with some questioning about what it means to be in a public space but i think because we don't know what the answer is and people want answers we have to be really clear in saying we have to plan to me i look at this almost like uh some of the best well-funded fire departments in the united states are in major metropolitan airports yet if you look most of these airports have never had a plane go down on the reservation. You know, they may have gone down in adjoining areas, cities, et cetera, but we wouldn't run these airports for one day without those really important and well-funded fire departments. Well, we have to run a public health system, a healthcare system too, that could in fact accommodate another Omicron-like variant should it emerge. So we have to build on that. On the other hand, if it doesn't happen, that's great. The other piece of this, which I think is to me, it gives broad daylight hope is the fact that I think we will see version 2.0, 3.0, and 4.0 in the vaccine world. I think we're going to see vaccines coming down the pike that will replace our current vaccines, which are remarkable. They are remarkable. They're just not perfect. And what we need are vaccines that have much more durable immunity long term. They have a broader breadth, a breadth of immunity. So if new variants emerge, they still will be effective, much like we're trying to achieve with universal flu vaccines. So that's number one. Number two, if we had this conversation in the early 1980s and we talked about HIV, it would be a death sentence. It was a death sentence back then. Today, HIV is a manageable chronic disease for many, many people. And I think with the drug therapies that we're looking at going forward, I think they can be highly effective once someone is infected in reducing the likelihood of severe disease, hospitalizations, and deaths. But to do that, we're going to need a comprehensive testing system that everyone has ready access to that can quickly give back a result so that we know that they're infected with COVID and that we can then get these drugs to them, which means the drugs have to be available and they have to be in the system so that it doesn't take days or weeks, if at all, to get them. If we can do those two things, improve on our vaccines and surely improve on how we deal with therapy, we can do a lot of what we accomplish with HIV. We can turn a very bad situation into a manageable one. And I think that's what's going to happen in the future. Bob, you have a question on uh, on that planning and how we pay for it. Well, I think that, uh, you know, as I was saying, I think that this really would have if we could manage to do it and the government doesn't always plan very well. But uh, if if you and others can can keep on this case, what uh, what occurs to me is that, you know, since the over the last two years, we've spent about six trillion dollars has been approved for covid relief in one form or another. Now, only about a tenth of that has been direct health care. Most of it has been for the economic fallout. Mm -hmm. And the lesson that I take from that is that if we invest more on the healthcare part of it, we will avoid the really expensive part of the pandemic, which is the loss to the economy and the need for the government to step in with, with economic aid. So I'm all for that. I think that, um, so I'm interested in your thoughts about specifically what, how, the response that the government has had on the healthcare part. Yeah. Of it. I'm not asking you to comment about uh, the, uh, you know, some of the other things, but just, you know, the, in your realm, 
what more could the government be doing? And, uh, you know, I know it's probably going to be very expensive. And for a budget uh, hawk like me, it might be hard to swallow. But uh, <laughs> but if but I think we can pay for it. So what would be the investments that we should be making? Let's take healthcare. The big limiting factor in healthcare that has caused healthcare system to go from breaking into to breaking from bending was in fact not enough personnel. We didn't have the trained healthcare workers we needed. And that is a systemic issue on salaries for nurses, even doctors, uh, support individuals within the healthcare facilities, healthcare systems. And so we have to look at what is the long-term training program support? What is the uh, kind of financial support we have for maintaining a robust and expandable healthcare system? We don't have that right now. A lot of people think it's beds, a lot of people think it's drugs, they're all important and they can be a challenge. But right now, that's not what has driven the number of healthcare systems in this country to literally start to break. So we have to take a step back and look at what should be our healthcare slash disease care system over the course of the next decade. How do we build that? How do we have resiliency within that? The second thing, though, I think that's a challenge. And this is where Omicron really has illustrated this more than the other variants is when you have a very highly infectious agent sweep through a community for four or five or six weeks, you bring the economy, you bring life as we know it to its knees. I mean, we have seen over the course of the last three to four weeks, absentee rates at work, 30, 40%, not only in healthcare, but in every other aspect of our lives. That's why garbage isn't getting picked up in a lot of places. That's why pharmacies have been closed two and three days out of the week. Uh, that's why we see so many aspects of first response being delayed, if not even available. And I could go through a laundry list of all of these things. So I think one of the things we have to ask ourselves is there's an old oil framp commercial from many years ago that was on TV that said, you can pay me now or you'll pay me later. So the question we have to ask ourselves, what is the investment we make to build up and sustain the infrastructure so that this doesn't happen again? Take this off the table. The final piece I'd add, and I, and I think, Bob, this is really an important point that people are missing right now. I think the wild card that is yet to really set the final agenda for the world economy and COVID is China. I think China right now is on the brink of potential major failure. Omicron has so changed the transmission characteristics of this virus, meaning much more highly infectious. China and what I would call their draconian public health approach to dealing with COVID have done a pretty darn good job of controlling it for the last two years since Wuhan. And it's meant shutting down, locking down major metropolitan areas of 14 million for weeks at a time with just very few cases. If you look at their numbers, they are sure a lot better than ours, but it came at a real cost. Their zero COVID policy cannot be sustained. Omicron, is the wind. You can deflect it, but you can't stop it. And I think what you're going to see happen over the course of the next six to eight weeks is in China, there's going to be more and more widespread Omicron transmission. They are going to, because of zero COVID policy, try to shut things down, major geographic areas. And with that, they're going to shut down manufacturing. Many of the supply chains that the world depends on will be unavailable, more so than any time during the pandemic. And I don't think they're going to be quick to relent in their approach to this kind of zero COVID policy. 
Um, I think that is a huge, huge economic issue right now. Imagine from a global supply chain basis, if much of China starts to shut down. Now, finally, I'd say, well, you know, hopefully they can do better. But it turns out that the two vaccines that they have brought forward, both the Sinovac and Sinopharm vaccines, appear to be relatively ineffective against Omicron. So here they have this large vaccinated population, which is a remarkable accomplishment, but with vaccines that may have very little impact on who gets infected, who transmits the virus in China. So I, I think from an economic standpoint, those are not ripple effects from China. That could be one major tsunami economically. And I, 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 I don't think the world sees it yet. No, and I, I, I think that that's a nightmare scenario, particularly when you think about the supply chain implications around for the global economy, which is already stressed to begin with. In the new normal, this is, raises a question. How do we deal with that? I mean, we can't convince China to change its policy. And I think that ch that policy is unsustainable. I, I, do, in that sense, do you, do you just look for alternative supply chain uh, options or, you know, prepare that way? Well, you know, I think China may not change, but they're going to have to change because it's, I don't believe it's sustainable. So at some point, the system will fail or they will decide that they are going to elect to take another course and somehow deal with this national pride issue, whatever. I don't know. But I think in the meantime, the rest of the world that is so dependent on China, for example, we in this country, many of the life-saving critical drugs that we use every day are generic drugs actually come largely from China. If that shuts down, the collateral damage will be huge. Uh, and so I think that they may have to fail to ultimately change, but the cost will be huge to the rest of us. In the meantime, it's not possible just to suddenly overnight develop uh, new supply chains. You can't do that. But every company in the world has to ask itself over and over again as part of its due diligence, Am I highly dependent on Chinese sourcing for critical elements of whatever I do? And if they are, you better be prepared. So I think that's the message that we have to get out right now is, you know, you, you can't avoid the Category 5 hurricane, but what are you going to do to be better prepared to protect life and physical structures as much as you can? We're going to have to take a break at this point. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Av Harris and I are talking with Dr. Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Av Harris and I are talking with Dr. Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota about the new normal of the COVID pandemic. Av, you want to get in one last question here? Absolutely. Um, Dr. Osterholm, one of the things I was most interested in reading your uh, the opinion piece, the recent one with uh, some of your colleagues on the Biden uh, transition team, the COVID advisors, is talking about the need for a, a much better data infrastructure when it comes to public health and how much that would make a difference um, in the ability to know where disease is happening and how to respond to it um, with better use of resources. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah. Because I'm curious, be, I mean, honestly, as somebody who worked in a state public health department, one of the challenges that we have had is that you've got all these competing jurisdictions. You've got federal, you've got state, you've got local health jurisdictions. 
And it seems to me that this freedom that we crave as Americans sometimes gets in our way with all these different governing jurisdictions when there's a national crisis that we need to respond to. Yeah. Well, clearly the data infrastructure needs of public health, which actually to me involve all of healthcare and government public policy is acute. I mean, I think most people would be surprised to know how many health departments in this country still are collecting case data by fax machine submission. Mm. That's a challenge. Okay, it's not quite tin cans of string, but darn near. And so much of the data that we're using today is outdated, antiquated. I've been saying for the last six weeks, I don't trust any of the numbers coming out today about number of new cases, because many health departments are backlogged thousands and thousands of cases. And even then testing is incomplete. So we know that we are not finding out about a lot of cases. The only numbers we really can reliably count on are hospitalizations and deaths, which, you know, are pretty terminal events that we unfortunately don't want to have to count, but that's what's giving us a sense of what's happening. Those are always lagging indicators, meaning it's two and three weeks late in getting that information. So there's much more we can do. I think the modern electronic era, uh, the ability to share information across healthcare systems, clinical laboratories, and public health agencies across the board is very doable. It just hasn't been done. We've not built the infrastructure to do it, and we need to. Why? Well, because for much of this pandemic, we've been counting on Israel, the UK, for data that they collect through their national health systems with links to public health that are so, so, so efficient and robust. And they have been able to provide us with key information on vaccines, how they're working, what's happening with testing, uh, clinical aspects of the disease. And it's a shame that we in this country don't have that. So if we at all believe that the future is going to provide us with more of these difficult moments. There's never been a better time to recognize and understand, again, that same comment I made earlier, you can pay me now or you'll pay me later. And that's what's going to happen if we don't invest in infrastructure. We will continue to be at the mercy of fax machines and paper documents. Uh, one more quick question, and, and I know you have to go, but... Um, sure. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, asked me to ask you this. She said, you know, around 65, 70% of people want to do the right thing. You know, what, you know, would wear a face mask, not avoid large crowds in an indoor space, get their vaccinations and their booster shots. Um, but, but people are feeling frustrated uh, because, mm -hmm. you know, the instructions, you know, the public health guidance seems to be, you know, one thing one day, another thing another day. And, and the other thing is just the, the lack of availability of a, a rapid test, which would give you an answer, an accurate answer right away and whether or not you need yeah. to avoid other people. So is there a message you, you have for folks who just want yeah. to do the right thing, but are frustrated? Well, you've described all the elements of a really bad soup we're in, okay? All those are <laughs> ingredients to make that soup happen. Uh, first of all, let me just be really clear. We are in a world of evolving science. You know, there are days that I uh, go to bed at night and I think to myself, you know, I knew a lot more about this virus six months ago than I know today. And I think we've not conveyed with humility just what we know and don't know and what we're trying to learn yet and helping people understand that so that they don't sit there and say, well, wait a minute, yesterday you told me this with such authority because we felt like we had to know. And when I don't know, I say that, but this is what we're trying to do to find out. And so one is you just have to communicate certainty and uncertainty and what you know and don't know. And so as science evolves, we get more data. We can then say, now we know this because of that. And people are much, much more accepting of that issue. 
The second thing is we need to be much clearer in our communication. Don't put out a document that's confusing and you don't even explain to the public through a press conference or ongoing briefings what that document means. You know, answer simple questions. If you can't get it to play in my little Iowa farm town Main Street restaurant, you can't get it to play. And you got to understand how important that is. And so I think all of these are elements that can improve a lot, even in a time of uncertainty for people to say, well, you know what? They didn't know, but they told us that. They told us what they're going to do to find out. And then when things changed, I understood why they got there. And I think that's life. That's what we need to do a better job of. Stop being all knowing, start being all learning. And oh, by the way, this is what I learned. Dr. Michael Osterholm is director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Thank you so much. Dr. Thank you Osterholm. very much. Thank you. Well, uh, that was uh, certainly an interesting interview with uh, Dr. Osterholm. You know, one of the things that was most interesting and, and most scary, um, and there's a lot scary about Omicron, but when he brought up the China thing and he didn't he didn't refer to it as a time bomb but it 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 really is um when you think about that economy trying to totally shut down banishing a virus from an entire country um and what that means is shutting down their economy and what that means is shutting down our economy to the i mean it will have an impact on our economy because we've already got all these supply chain problems and, uh, you know, um, if China goes back into lockdown mode, that's going to exacerbate our supply chain problem. It's going to exacerbate our inflation problem. And I was prepared for the bad news on healthcare, but that just kind of re reiterated some uh, bad news for the economy, which always reflects on bad news for the budget. You're listening to Facing the Future. Uh, this is Bob Bixby. I've Harris and I have been talking with Dr. Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota about the COVID pandemic and strategizing ways to uh, develop a, a new normal of living with the virus, which is not to say ignore it and hope that it goes away, but assuming that it's gonna be around and we're gonna have to live with it. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman joins me for a look at the federal budget through the first quarter of 2022. Tori, welcome back. Hi, Bob. Good to see you. Well, uh, three months have already passed in the fiscal year, and we still don't have full-year appropriations. Uh, <laughs> that's a, surprise! Uh, yes, that's just one item of unfinished business uh, that, uh, that we want to discuss here. Uh, there are a lot of other things, but first, let's just look at where the deficit stands one quarter of the way through. Are there any noticeable trends? Yes, yeah, so a little budget check-in today. Um, so first quarter of, of fiscal year 22, you sort of see some good news, bad news when it comes to the, the federal budget and, and budget deficits. The good news is that the first quarter deficit uh, was nearly a third smaller than the deficit at this same time last year, by like almost $200 billion less. Um, and the short answer is that the economy obviously is a lot stronger today than it was a year ago. But also, you know, there's there's a little bit of dumb luck uh, also associated with that that budget number. There's been a calendar anomaly that a 
that affects that. And, and then some of the, the 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 good budget news has been legislative driven and sort of things that that won't repeat one time events that that won't repeat won't repeat. Um, but the bad news uh, uh, is that we are starting to see the infect, effects of inflation starting to emerge in some of the budget data. So good news, bad news. How, how is that uh, inflation showing up? So uh, among the many uh, treasury securities that we auction off to finance our debt is something called uh, treasury inflation protected securities. Um, so these are treasury securities that actually adjust based on the rate of inflation. So when inflation goes up, uh, the principal amount owed, owes, owed goes up. Um, so we are um, having to pay higher interest on those what they call tips. Uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities tips. So that's where it's showing up is in the net interest uh, line item of the budget. Um, and actually net interest outlays increased about 18% over the first quarter of last year compared to this year. It seemed to me that the, uh, you know, the, the big good news was in the, in the revenue number, you know, really high up. Uh, but you right. mentioned that there are some, some factors there clearly temporary and can't necessarily be counted on as a a long-term trend, but the spending number was surprisingly constrained for the first three months. Exactly. So revenues, I would describe them as galloping at this point. Revenues are up 31% over last year, but for two very different reasons. One, as I said before, the economy is doing better, um, especially we've got higher total wages and salary. So when, when people are earning more money, uh, they also pay higher taxes. And so we're seeing a lot of higher tax dollars coming in, especially from higher income workers. Um, and that's pushing up the individual income tax and the payroll tax collections. Um, but on the legislative front, uh, recall that that previous legislation that Congress passed allowed employers to defer the payroll taxes that they owed uh, for a good chunk of 2020. So a lot of employers, especially small employers, did not pay any payroll taxes on behalf of their employees from about March of 2020 until the end of that year. And then Congress said, but we want you to eventually pay that back. You know, and that deadline was December 31st of 2021, which was just a, a couple of weeks ago. So a lot of the revenue collections that we saw in the first quarter of this fiscal year, some of it was attributable to the economy, but some of it was also attributable to people paying, employers paying payroll taxes that they ordinarily would have paid uh, in, in 2020. Um, so uh, you've got a, a little bit of economic effect, but then you've also got a little bit of legislative effect. And of course, that legislative effect, it's a one-time thing. And we wouldn't expect that to be repeated, for example, in the next quarter. On the spending side, one of the things that struck me is um, that it, it seemed that, you know, there's a big increase in things that were related to the pandemic that uh, like the child tax credits that are recorded as as outlays, I, I think. Uh, That's correct. Were, yeah. And, the refundable portion, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, the refundable portion. So that uh, those added a, a lot. Now, some of those have expired. I mean, the, the child, the enhanced child tax credit uh, has expired. So the, the regular budget was, as I say, rel relatively constrained. Uh, so e even with the small growth, a lot of that was still with uh, pandemic-related spending. 
Right, right. So spending was up only about 4% on a direct comparison this quarter to of, of, of fiscal 22 compared to this quarter of fiscal 2021. Um, so, and, and that's, you know, that, that, that's good news. You know, we're not, you know, in, in when we've been posting, you know, double digit increases in, in spending quarter over quarter, it's nice to see that's only a 4% increase. But we, we have to remind ourselves, why is that the case? Um, well, part of it, um, there are sort of two big things that are working in, in opposite directions to each other. First of all, we were spending less on unemployment benefits because if you recall, a lot of the uh, special pandemic unemployment benefits expired in September 21. Um, and of course, we also have fewer people who are unemployed and collecting unemployment insurance. Okay, so that drives down spending. Uh, on the other hand, though, uh, we, the IRS started issuing a portion of the refundable child tax credit uh, this last quarter, this last, you know, they started in the summertime and it continued to the end of the year. Um, and that uh, actually raised spending. As a matter of fact, we were spending four times as much on refundable tax credits in the first quarter of this fiscal year as compared to last year. But um, that tax credit, uh, that expended portion, the expanded portion, the refundable portion, of that tax credit has since expired in December. Uh, uh, so, and Congress hasn't moved yet uh, to reinstate that. Uh, I know that's one of the things that they're talking about. They wanted to push and build back better, um, but that ran into objections from Senator Manchin from West Virginia. So, um, you know, that there was a big plus up in child or in refundable tax credits in the first quarter. Are we gonna see that in the second and third and fourth quarters of this fiscal year? Unclear, uncertain. We knew that the deficit effects of COVID would eventually fade, right? We're not going to be spending five, six trillion dollars a year fighting COVID ad infinitum. We know that eventually deficits are going to head lower after the pandemic fades, just like deficits under Obama fell after the Great Recession and then started to creep back up again. Um, you know, we're expecting that same sort of phenomenon here, but I think it's too soon to say right now that we're in that portion of the phase of the pandemic, the budgetary phase of the pandemic, where we see a very clearly defined turning point in deficits and the deficits shrinking. It's possible, but I think it's still too early to say there's still a lot of other question marks, especially about fiscal year 2022. We still don't know what the budgetary contours of that fiscal year look like, even though we're a quarter into it, you know, there's still a lot of decisions that Congress has to make uh, that affect spending and revenues. Um, and until those are made, it's really hard to understand and get a clear picture about where we're going in 2022 and whether or not we've actually sort of turned the corner on those pandemic level high budget deficits. Well, let's talk about some of those uncertainties. Uh, you mentioned the appropriations bill uh, bills that uh, they all run out. Uh, in February 18th, and they're going to have to do full year appropriations. And as you said, that's that's still a question mark. Put a pin in that for a second, because right. it's also what happens with the Build Back Better Act, which they're now talking about splitting up into other things. So that's a that's a great uncertainty. Right. Um, let's uh, going back to appropriations and uncertainties. I mean, one of the issues has been the uh, disagreement over the size of the defense budget. And it strikes me that, uh, you know, recent events in, in Eastern Europe play into that, because mm -hmm. it, it, if, if there is uh, 
if there's some sort of deployment of uh, troops that haven't been deployed yet, uh, uh, put on alert, uh, that could add spending pressure on the defense side. That might help break the logjam, but uh, mm-hmm. on on budgets. But but talk a little bit about the uh, appropriations bills. Sure. So you know we've been operating under a temporary stopgap funding measure called a continuing resolution, um, uh, which basically says the spending bills that we have in place for last year carry forward into this year. They do that to keep the government functioning while they negotiate full year appropriations for the fiscal year that we're in right now. There are 12 bills that they have to negotiate between the House and the Senate, Republicans and Democrats. These aren't pieces of legislation that you can cram into a reconciliation bill and pass with a simple majority. So you got to have Republicans and Democrats at the table. These are 60 vote measures. Um, And, you know, imagine you're having to negotiate, you know, 12 different bills uh, and all of the programs and agenda items that fall underneath those 12 different bills. And then all of a sudden, you know, and a big chunk of, of, of those negotiations is the defense appropriations bill. And you, know, you have to you have to consider the fact that whether rising tensions with Russia over Ukraine are going to affect negotiations for the defense budget. You know, they, they might have nailed down a top line number, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And there's a question now, I guess. Uh, you know, we don't know whether or not these recent uh, activities uh, in Ukraine uh, uh, will change that number. Now, it's possible that instead of changing the top line number, what appropriators agree to is to give the Defense Department a lot more flexibility underneath that number, that top line number to move money around into different accounts. That's one one of the ways to get around you know, a, a, a constraining top line defense number is just give the Defense Department more authority to move things around as they need. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what, what happens there. There's been talk about splitting up the big Build Back Better bill mm-hmm. uh, that has had many iterations, but the form in which it passed the House is not going to pass the Senate. And so the question is, what then do Democrats do? But it's not that simple to just <coughs> say, break it up because the whole thing has reconciliation protection, which means that it gets around the filibuster. Uh, if you start breaking it up, you can lose that, I, I guess. Uh, so ex- explain what, what are the procedural hurdles that Democrats have to keep in mind as they go forward? Well, I mean, you, you pretty much summed it up exactly right there, which is, you know, Build Back Better was supposed to move under the reconciliation process as one giant bill. And that one giant bill had the protections of reconciliation, which meant that it could pass the Senate with a simple majority and not have to uh, worry about uh, a cloture vote or, or Senate filibuster. When you start breaking the Build Back Better up into individual pieces of legislation, um, it's not like each individual piece becomes its own little reconciliation bill. Okay, reconciliation applies to one bill and one bill only in this case. Um, and so when you start breaking it up into pieces, for example, if they split off the child tax credit, the House does and sends it to the Senate as a, as a standalone piece of legislation, that's now a 60 vote measure. Okay, that becomes a bill in which Schumer is going to have to file cloture on in order to get on the bill and would have to file cloture in order to get to a final vote. Um, And so obviously you can see at that point in the face of united Republican uh, uh, opposition to an expanded uh, child tax credit that the Senate would fail to get the 60 votes necessary. So at that point, you see that this the strategy of breaking it up, uh, build back better into individual pieces of legislation is not a recipe for 
enacting bills into law, it's a strategy for it's it's a communication strategy. It's it's a, a way to to show that the House Democrats are moving and grooving and, and passing legislation in the Senate. And that's the Senate and the Senate Republicans that are the problem. Um, you know, it, again, it becomes a messaging strategy and not a strategy to enact laws. Um, you know, I, I sort of question the wisdom of that at this point. I mean, I know it's 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 an election year. Midterm elections uh, are, are looming high uh, in, in everybody's uh, uh, radar screen. And they're very concerned about the outcome of the 22 elections. Uh, how Democrats in particular are very eager to show that they're they're out there working hard on behalf of the American people. But I really think at this point, you know, Americans are looking for action, not talking points. Um, and not communication strategies. So uh, I think the, the president uh, has said, we're going to go back to the table uh, on Build Back Better, and we're going to try and negotiate a new package with Senator Manchin. I think that's the right strategy. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Well, stay tuned. That's uh, all the time we have this week. Tori, thanks for a great, uh, efficient tour through the budget through the first quarter of the fiscal year. Uh, thanks to uh, all of our listeners for tuning in. This is Bob Bixby, host of Facing the Future, and I'll be back next week with another uh, episode then. Thanks. Thanks.